Left. Right. So, America. Sounds like a pretty expensive place to live, yeah? Well, in this episode, we break down what is contributing to the cost of living here, why it's so difficult and becoming increasingly difficult to afford just everyday life. Imagine uh, 1950s and 60s, you could work in a shoe store and uh, be able to provide for a family as the only working member of the family, have a two-car garage, white picket fence, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you work at a shoe store now, you're not able to put food on your own table. So uh, times have changed. Uh, enjoy the episode. I'll see you on the other end. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. Looks like we are live. This is Sip Talk, episode 205. My name is Justin DiGiulio, out of my basement in New Jersey, joined by James, the Bosnator Boswell philosopher, retired professional referee, bartender, and most exciting of all, accountant. And we are also joined by Kevin, by title, resident hippie liberal douche. Yeah, uh, yeah the resident hippie liberal douche. Who's ready to contribute. So here we are. Uh, uh, we were just talking about what we were drinking before we, we went on air. James, you said you're drinking Bush Ice. Bush Ice. Kevin, you said you just went to the store. Yeah, I've got Knob Creek. Okay. Uh, now, James is in sunny South Carolina without the sun. It's nighttime. Kevin, are you, uh, you also in South Carolina? No, I'm in uh, upstate New York. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well, Knob Creek has always been something to me that makes me think of kind of like sitting by the fireplace trying to stay warm. I like, I like a little Knob Creek. I've got one of my winter favorites here is a, a Hendrix gin. I just stepped in. I realized I didn't have a glass down here. Stepped into the boiler room to get some leftover glassware. Um, and I just blew into the cup and all this dust just came out. So uh, I can't see straight. The cup's probably really dirty. Uh, but let's let this episode come in. What's that? The gin will kill that. Yeah, the gin should if I rub it on my eyeballs. Today, we are talking, uh, this is episode four in the series of How to Fix America. And today, yeah, we are it, talking about affording America. Four of many, because there's lots of problems here. There's, there's lots of problems. And we you, you, we were talking beforehand that we might not have enough content to sustain the entire hour-long episode. I actually think just the different perspectives that we have on this and and kind of tearing down uh, as to why it's not affordable anymore. You know, if you're, if you're talking 50 years ago, you could work in a shoe shop, have a four, four bedroom home, two car garage, two kids and a spouse that didn't work. Right? Yeah. Like even if you think about like married with children where like the dude had a decent suburban house, a wife who didn't work like two cars worked one job. And at the time when you watched that show, like, 
there might have been other unrealistic things that happened in the show, but everyone's like, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Like he can afford that. He did. He did work in a, in a shoe shop, and uh, but I mean, it, it was TV. But I think that I think the yeah, but like what, is that when you Friends was on, and you had these people in this huge apartment in New York City. Everyone's like, that's bullshit. That nobody can do that. But, but. 40 50 60 years ago and 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 further and but well before that when it came to the united states you didn't need to be an engineer or a high-end professional in any different industry to be able to afford a fucking house and a car and food and health insurance right nowadays unless you have i mean for the i'm looking at the cost of living and the, in, the median income in different states, uh, different cities across the country, like you're not buying a house. If, if the average cost of a house is $500,000 and the average income is $61,000 in that state, how, you know, how's that working out? $61,000 of income is not qualifying for a mortgage on a $500,000 house. Not, not, not even with, close. Not with six and a half, seven percent 7% interest rates. Not even at like 2% interest rates. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, there's no way. So, I think that's kind of the reality uh, in the current setting that we have right now. I have a lot of friends in New York City that all rent. I remember, um, you know, eight, 10 years ago when people would come to my apartment and be astonished that I lived alone, just being blown. What do you mean you don't have roommates? And there are people in New York City that are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s that live with roommates because that's the lifestyle there. The, the, the majority, roughly 70% of residents in New York City rent apartments. They don't own the condo or co-op. Um, and buying something is prohibitively expensive in New York City. So there's that aspect of it. People living with roommates, which you wouldn't expect to be doing at 45, 50 years old. Or, you know, if you're 18, 17, 18 years old, think about what your life is going to look like in your mid and later 20s. You think you, you do imagine yourself being 28 years old? living with with four dudes hey well i i have two roommates but i also like it's a house like i wouldn't want to be in an apartment with more than one roommate and in new york city having two or three or four roommates is pretty common well you're in a good place now as a single nuts but whatever your situation is household income wise you can you can have a good setup where you have a big house and you can house hack and have some roommates you familiar with the term house hacking? Mm-mm. House hacking is you go and you do a down payment, you get a mortgage, and then you get some roommates to live in the house, and they basically pay your bills. That's tougher to do when you have a family and stuff, but you're in a good enough position that you actually could afford to buy the house. Well, and you could have the family help to pay the bills. Well, but again, that, that's how many people in your family are working, and then what's the cost of living? So let, let me just start a Chinese restaurant. That then they can start as young as five. Yep. So um, I'm curious, guys, what do you think is the biggest factor in the unaffordability of the United States? We'll, we'll leave Probably up. housing, which we've talked about. And I, I looked this up. So if you look at average rent per year, so since 1980, rent prices have increased an average of 8.85% per year which way outpaces wage inflation over the same period of time. Yeah, you think inflation in general, uh, you know, most people think, oh, two to three percent, not, you know, the past year or two, obviously, right? But 
in general, you're looking at two to three percent in a uh, normal year, we'll call it. And so, yeah, if you're averaging eight percent, that means that just housing is getting more and more expensive. Uh, certainly going to outgrow any any potential yeah, raise I you think can wage, get. Wage inflation is probably somewhere between like two and five percent over the same period of time. Um, all right, here we go. Rent prices increase 1.94% faster than wages, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you have 40 years to accrue that, like that 2% starts to really add up. So Especially yeah, the, when that's your biggest you know, factor, typically in terms of monthly bills. Well, I mean, yeah. The thing is, the fact that we're talking on a 40-year scale seems uh, obscene to me. However, the fact that it has gone unchecked, effect, I'll bet you it's, it's year-over-year increase without slowing down at all uh, over 40 years, which is... So the vast, like I'm looking at these and it's, most of it's every 10 years, but sometimes it's like every five years. And the vast majority of them are positive. There's like one little blip where it's negative. But this this is what, this was housing costs? Rent. Oh, this is rent. Okay. So Um, So in the last three years, it's been... Like almost dead on nine percent if you average them out. So I have some interesting rent numbers, uh, and I I just pulled them I think from the uh, U.S. Census Bureau, but um, I want to give you some overall rent prices. So, uh, and I picked a, some diverse states, but New York and New York I think in itself is diverse because you have upstate New York and then you have New York City. New York median rent twenty four seventy four for the state for the state Florida twenty two oh nine New Jersey twenty eight twenty two these are rent prices South Carolina fourteen forty three Texas fourteen eighty three South Dakota eleven hundred thirty California three thousand thirty two so California is leading of the states that I pulled. Overall median rent in the U.S., uh, $1,983. So Yeah, it's expensive. And I, I, like the problem that I, I really want to just focus on is rent is going up faster than wages are. So you're going if you let this experiment run endlessly, you're eventually going to get to the point where nobody can afford rent. But that's what I'm saying. You know, 40 years sounds like an obscene scale to be measuring this on. But the fact that it that it just has gone up year after year after year unchecked and nothing has changed in 40 years. Where what does thing what do things look like in another? Well, things have changed over the past 40 years. It's not like that continued uh, growth in you know how much it costs to rent has gone for no reason at all well so the i think a lot of the issue with the rent prices though what i see in new york city is that we have these big conglomerate behemoth companies that are buying uh, rental buildings and we have a lot less affordability of the general real estate for the smaller players to get involved uh, and the bigger players just have a lot more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a monopoly. Yeah, well, but they can monopolize and, and influence rent prices. You know, what were you going to say, James? 
two things. One, we, we were kind of talking about this before we went live, where Kevin was talking about how, like, with inflation and everything, it, it's had the effect with with inflation and income inequality. It's had the effect of, co- like, coalescing into a smaller and smaller pool of people. And what I was going to say is that's kind of the natural course of unchecked capitalism is that like small advantages multiply over time and you can just continue to use the money that you had to make even more money. And it's, it's really difficult to fight that without having some kind of anti-capitalist measures put into place. Well, higher tax rates. That's that's one, yes, for sure. And that's not that's that's socialist, right? That, that's you know, I, capitalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not. I mean, it's not necessarily one or the other. You know, it it it, it may just you know a hundred percent tax rate on on profits effectively would be socialist, but but no. increasing increasing the tax rates would not be socialist. Would it be closer to that realm? Yeah. Well, it's all of this is on a continuum where you have no taxation and no government, and you have like anarcho-capitalism where everything has a price, and like if you, any service you want can be bought, but nothing's provided for you. And then on the other extreme would be like pure communism, where everything is provided for you, and you have no choice in anything. And socialism, if we were to go like zero is anarcho-capitalism and 100 is pure communism, socialism probably lives in like the 40 to 80 range. Well, depending on how extreme you're taking that socialism. I, right. I don't, but I don't necessarily think it would be a linear scale. Okay, because, no. as, you know, as you get more, I mean, either way, that's not the scenario that we're in. Uh, limiting capitalism I think is something that is going to help solve this problem, but I don't think getting in the realm of socialism is is where we need to be. Well, it, it is like anytime you're doing something like this, you are in the realm of socialism. Well, and what, what we need to stop, we need to destigmatize the word socialism because let, let me give you an example though. Let me give you an example. Rather than taxing the businesses, okay, and then giving people more free services. Right. We're going to we're going to tax the tire shop on their profits and then we're going to reduce the cost of tires. I don't think that's that's going in the realm of socialism. I think maybe creating jobs for tire manufacturing here may be a better idea. Right. Bringing those jobs here, sourcing the, the resources and the material here and the labor here. And I don't think that's necessarily in the realm of socialism. You follow me? Whereas if we, if we tax the tires and then give people tired credits, that's more socialist, right? But if we tax the tires a little bit more, that's that's more anti-capitalism. But, and then I suppose so is telling people that the jobs need to be in the U.S. and we need to be sourcing material. Right. Any the- interference in the free market is going to be, by definition, socialist in nature. Uh in, in what way? I think I don't think I don't think capitalism and socialism are are, are exact opposites. I I, I I think you're confusing socialism 
with the authoritarian governments that that, that are frequently the boogeymen of socialism. Well, I'm, I'm thinking that right? I'm, I'm talking about socialism as an economic policy, not as a political discussion. I'm thinking more like Denmark and Sweden. Right. You know, Which you are, have very high taxes, very, very much more on the socialist. Right. And they, like, if I were to have to score them, I'd put them at like probably like a 65 or a 70 in terms of socialism. But, but their countries are very much so based on that, whereas our country is based on, at this point in time, the right to bear arms and ban abortions. So we're, you know, we're like, like, I'd rate our country at like a 30 or a 35. I, I, I just don't think that we're going to turn the U.S. into a giant Sweden uh, any time ever. And no, but you can look at some of the policies that like the Nordic countries have. And you can look and see that they're objectively successful. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out on TikTok to Saliha Ozdeal, who just became our top viewer. I guess she's watched this the longest. We have MJ1226, Santos Day, uh, and Bible Worshipper, which says, this is my last night on earth before God welcomes me to heaven. I can't wait by. So okay. that's just the last, last two minutes, I saw a bunch of, uh, bunch of comments come through. And uh, we got a few people on Instagram too. Say hi to these guys. Um, I see Irma, Layla, Jorge, Lalisa. What's going on, guys? Um, so, can I throw out some numbers for uh, median household income? Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Just to contrast with the the monthly rent costs. Um, so, so I'm going to give you the same states because I feel like New York, New Jersey. Florida, South Carolina, North Dakota, and California are, are just pretty good states. As it yeah, we're hitting kind of the corners of the I country. I don't know. New Jersey, that's not really the greatest state. I mean, no. have you ever been to Jersey? He, he lives in Jersey. <laughs> I, I think you'd be surprised. That's, <laughs> that's coming from a former New Yorker. So uh, average household income, uh, New York, and this is, this is 2021 because we're still in 2022. Um, average household income, 75,000, Florida, 61,000, New Jersey, 89,000, South Carolina, 58,000, Texas, 67,000, South Dakota, 63,000, California, 84,000. And the overall uh, average income for the U.S., 69,000, uh, 69, $21. So what's interesting is when you look, you can see that like, while there's definitely variance between those states in terms of the for the income, the variance in income is much less than the variance in rent. Uh, yeah, very much so. But the, the, but those aren't uh, big jumps in income either. I, I wonder what those numbers were uh, three years ago. You know, pre-pandemic, because I'm sure part of it is you know, once COVID hit. You know, people were allowed to work remotely, and so I know there were a lot of you know white collar workers who all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't have to live in you know midtown downtown Manhattan. I can you know go buy a farm in South Dakota while still making my Manhattan income. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I'm yeah. sure that there, there's you know cases like that that skewed numbers. You know, uh, I, think, a little I bit. think there's probably fewer cases of that, but but I'll bet there's a, I'll bet there are some. I. I did I, move out of the city, but but not because I was working remotely. I still commute every day of a very long commute. 
but I didn't want to be in the city, especially after just dealing with the way they govern the city through coronavirus. Well, it's it's highly regional because I know um, one of my friends out in, that lived in Oakland um, talked about how so many people she knew that lived in San Francisco were moving to like Tahoe instead. And so Tahoe for about a year or so was one of the hottest real estate markets because, because you had all these people that worked in the tech industry in San Francisco making good incomes, but also paying out the ass for everything because San Francisco is expensive. And as soon as they were like, could cut ties with the geographic location of San Francisco, like they went, they looked at some places that were nice that were nearby and Tahoe, Tahoe like fit all of the bills. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where like there were people like who had homes in Tahoe that said several times a day or several times a week, like random people would just be knocking on their door saying, I'll give you $3 million cash for your house tomorrow. Like the place wasn't listed for sale. There's no signs out front, no real estate agent, no nothing. Just people would be walking up to people that owned homes in, in Tahoe and saying, I'll give you whatever you want for this house because they're probably making five or $600,000 a year in the tech industry and they could afford to make that kind of a purchase. It, hap- yeah. it, it, it happened in New York as well. Um, you know, I, I lived closer to Manhattan uh, as of a couple of years ago. I was looking to buy a house, you know, in lower Hudson Valley. Uh, and so about a year before I uh, ended up buying my current house, I was like, okay, let's just have a look at what the market says. So I have an idea of, you know, what I need to save up and confirm that I'm, you know, on track for that. And then COVID hit and people from Manhattan started moving out into, you know, the suburbs and literally the same homes that were on, that were for sale at one price, they went up by 30% over the course of the year. And they, and if anything, they actually went down in quality. You know, they went from, you know, one price affordable, uh, ready to move in, don't require any work other than, oh, maybe, you know, you, you want to paint a room a certain color, you know, fine, but it's a good house to move into, to, okay, here's a train wreck, and you're going to have to put in another quarter million just to bring it up to code. Uh, no, I mean, we're, we're seeing the same thing in Jersey, and it's, it's a similar market out here because of our yeah. proximity to Manhattan, and houses were selling for well over reasonable value. Uh, you know, we bought relatively early in the pandemic and had difficulty with appraisal because a lot of the comps just weren't there in the historical data. Right. And, and the comps just couldn't keep up with the market. Well, if you go back a year in in the comps, places were 40 percent less. Right. Yeah. So, so you know, and, and trying to find places that had as much land as we have here. Um, it was just, it was really tough. So we, we struggled with that. We had to actually put down a much bigger down payment uh, because of the appraisal just to save the house. And it was almost impossible to buy a house during that time. Um, but Kevin, to what you said, yeah, people had to actually sell their houses, meaning they had to be proactive with actually trying to sell the house. Now people didn't have to repair that hole in the wall or patch the, the, the pothole in the driveway or paint, you know, put a fresh coat of paint on the house or, you know, host open houses where they baked cookies and lit candles. They just had to put it on the market and they had offers coming out, coming out of their ass. So, uh, but I think what we're going to see now 
And this is why it's an interesting spin on the cost of living and affordability of the United States, affordability in the U.S., is that with this recent sharp rise in mortgage rates, in interest rates, mortgages are much more expensive. And the number of home sales has plummeted very quickly uh, because, you know, we're talking about adding a lot more of a monthly spend onto people's bills than they were prepared for. Well, the, the number of home sales plummeting is also highly regional, where if you look at home sales across the nation, it's actually somewhat flat if you if you take out a couple key markets. So and those are the markets that were the hottest prior to the mortgage rates going way up. So like a, a city like San Diego, it has seen like a huge drop in home sales recently. But if you look, if you take out like the hot markets like San Diego, Miami, Phoenix, Tampa, and I think that's, those are like the, the four that came up in my reports all the time. Then home sales are relatively flat. Um, and the thing is, we've talked about this on the cast before with these large corporations buying up single family houses to rent out and they pay cash. So they don't care what mortgage rates are because they're not paying mortgages. So they can still afford to buy these homes. And that's what you're competing against as a single, as a single person trying to buy a house is. Well, that's what happened with Zillow is they were buying uh, all the homes in certain neighborhoods and then by the time they would buy the last home, the price would be up. And then that would help them increase the property value. Well, they yeah, they, kind of, they were kind of running a pump and dump almost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that the last property they would buy would be at a higher price, which would then inflate the price of all the properties that they had formerly bought. They ended up getting kind of bitten in the ass by that practice, though. Not, not, not enough. I mean, they stopped doing it. And that's basically I don't think they had to pay anything out. No, they didn't like right. they didn't get in any trouble, but like it was a strategy that worked short term, but people eventually caught on to it. But you've got firms the thing is Zillow was doing it because Zillow was looking to basically flip the homes. They were just looking to buy it and then buy up a lot of surrounding homes around there, pump up the kind of neighborhood's value, and then exit the market all at once. Whereas you've got firms like BlackRock which aren't interested in doing these quick sales and these quick turnarounds, they're happy to own these own, uh, own these homes and rent them out. And then rent them out. Just uh, for anybody that's joining us now, if you're watching on Instagram or TikTok, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can also watch on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or Twitch, and you'll be able to make comments that we can read real time. So if you want to comment while you're watching this, comment on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or Twitch. We can see what you're saying. We'd love to have you guys join, but don't forget also to subscribe to Sip Talk Podcast. So I but, want. I want. Let me, to talk- let me just finish up that thought right, because, like, I didn't realize with, with, what Zillow was doing is like with the quick turnaround thing. That was kind of pushing people out of the market, but those homes were coming back onto the market pretty quickly, and because Zillow didn't really execute this strategy very well. Like they lost money on a lot of homes, and so if you were just patient and knew what you were doing, you could probably still like get yourself a decent deal that way. What BlackRock is doing is they're taking supply out, 
and that supply yeah. is not coming back. No, because they're turning the, they're converting them into rental properties. Which, and there's a, that's just a big difference because well, every, all the prices go up when you reduce supply. That's where I want to go in this conversation is some other contributing costs to daily life. So, you know, and I'll just give you one example. It's not a good example, but if you wanted to use Microsoft Word 10 years ago, you went and you spent 50 bucks or 100 bucks on Microsoft Word. Now you got to pay $19 a month as a subscription fee, right? So when you're talking about you used to own a home and now these big corporations are coming in, buying them and renting them out, people are losing the ownership aspect of homes, but that's happening on literally everything else. So I gave you an example of Microsoft Word, but that also goes, we talked about the, in a, the car episode, the future of vehicles, how all the future vehicles are gonna be controlled electronically. So to unlock features, you'll have to pay a monthly subscription fee. So We're already know. seeing that. The, the, the latest one I saw is that there's a like an electric car that Mercedes is making where you can pay an extra monthly subscription for more acceleration. So the electric motors in the car have the capability of, let's just say, 500 horsepower. Yeah. But you can only get the 500 horsepower if you pay a subscription for it. Otherwise, it's 300 horsepower. I'm making up the numbers, but just yeah. to illustrate the point. But yeah, but Te Tesla's doing the similar thing with the range of their batteries, right? So, so the original owner uh, buys the battery, you know, with uh, so that it can charge to 280 miles or whatever the max range of their battery is, right? They go ahead and they sell it, uh, and the new owner, once they take it into a Tesla shop for you know whatever normal uh, maintenance, they will reset the battery so it will only charge 240 miles. And which, you have to pay money to get it back. Yeah, up yeah, to yeah. You have to yeah, you have to pay to get that 280 back. Well, whenever you buy a car, you want to take it in for a tune-up, right? That's that's your tune-up cost. Uh, but but I think we're seeing we're well, that's, 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 yeah. But the thing is, the tune-up's an actual mechanical procedure that you need to do on a car. Yeah. Whereas this is just like unclicking a box in the software. Well, but just think that the mechanic shops are going to make a lot less money because there's a lot fewer moving parts, a lot less complexity with these electrical vehicles. A lot less uh, mechanical complexity, I should say. The, the, they'll, they'll change uh, slash evolve. It's not that they won't make any more money. It's that they'll have to realize that, okay, we're no longer just strictly mechanical. Uh, we'll have to get someone that's, you know, basically a computer tech in. Well, that's you know, not, we'll, no, it, it won't happen like that because, like, all of these companies have their own proprietary software that they won't allow outside of the dealership. So if you're an independent mechanic shop, uh, even yes if you've got no. someone with a com computer science background and like, you're, you're not going to be able to get the software to interface with like the firmware that's on the car. Uh, you, you, are, you are vastly over uh, valuing the quality of the software on these cars. Like th th there's been a mod market for, I know Tesla's, and there has been for quite some time where, you know, people will say, hey, yeah, we'll go ahead uh, and we'll unlock that 280 mile battery for you because uh, they know how to get in and, you know, fix it. It's they're, they're not an authorized test Tesla retailer or anything. It's entirely black market, uh, but they offer their services that way. It's not like it's, uh, you know, You're probably also avoiding any and all warranties on the car when you do that, though. Well, possibly. So. So what are some other things, though, outside of vehicles 
that are becoming subscription or rental based? Um, because I, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine bef right before we jumped on air, and we were talking about how. Well, actually, we were talking about mechanic shops, and I was saying back in the day, you used to be able to go to a Valvoline or uh, a Jiffy Lube or something and just roll up and get an oil change in a half hour to an hour. But back then, people used to get oil changes every 3,000 miles much more frequently. Now, people are getting their oil changed every 10,000 miles as required by the manufacturer. But what I found, I called nine different shops to just get a balance and alignment a few weeks ago. And finally, I was able, but, and they were booked for the following week. Finally, I was able to get it done somewhere. And when I went in to pick up the car, I was like, hey, man, like, what's the deal? Why, why can't, why can nobody, it's a simple, it takes less than an hour. It's very simple. You got, it's just pure labor. There doesn't, there's no parts involved. You're not, you're not, I'm not I mean, buying any. Put it up any on, the, on the alignment rack, have the lasers do their thing. Yeah. It's not like I go in and they, and, and they give me a $50 part, you're right. Um, and he said, we don't have anybody that, that works here. I have one tech on. I can't find anybody else to uh, to work here. So you know, there, there is that aspect of things too. Well, let me let me pivot a little bit because I want to I talk about minimum wage, which like mechanic shops aren't paying minimum wage. But I do want to talk about wage growth or more aptly wage stagnation. And so... I think if you if you as a business are having trouble finding employees, I think in the vast majority of cases, the reason for that is you're not paying enough. I, but I think that increasing wages for a, a mechanic shop like that, for example, would put them out of business. I can't imagine they make they make that much money month over month, week over week that they're that vastly profitable i think and again this is the i i know that you and you guys are both much more liberal than i am and you really want to circle back to wages but i think that is uh, i think that's just kind of like a, a quick service level fix i think really it has to do with cost of goods and manufacturing and you could say cost of rent. We can include cost of rent well, because a business renting a retail space or, you know, a strip mall or warehouse space, that rent price is way too expensive. I, I, you know, I could tell you my rent for the office uh, in monthly overhead was intimidating. You know, what we were paying every month in rent was intimidating. And, you know, if I look at opening another office again, like that's my big concern is the rent cost. And the cost of everything is is just absolutely insane. So not just the cost of wages, but but rent and wages will put you out of business. And the way that these big corporations and the landlords work is they squeeze you for every penny of your profit they can on rent. Kevin, what were you going to say? Um, I've 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 already blanked on what I was going. <laughs> I'll give you another example as someone who in the last decade started a business, grew it very quickly. Um, every time I had a, a spare money, I hired somebody. Every time I, I had an extra 30 grand in, uh, in revenue, I hired somebody and paid them 60 grand because I figured that by the time, 
even though I couldn't afford their 60 grand with that 30 grand, in implementing that position because it was a new position would help me make up the difference. And it did. It did, you know, year over year, higher after higher. Um, but that's, you know, that's how I ran my business, which is why it became really difficult during the coronavirus pandemic period, uh, because we were already operating, you know, uh, using all of our revenue towards expanding the business, paying wages and covering expenses. Right. Right. So I, I just remembered what my question is going to actually be uh, going back to those numbers about income that you had mentioned earlier. Uh, where were they roughly uh, eight, like median income across the states? I think it was for the for the U.S. was sixty nine thousand. OK, that's family income. Yes. Yeah, so that, OK, so that's that's family income. And that means that literally half the country is making less than sixty nine thousand. Right. That's what median. That income. Medium, yeah, that yes. Right. So there was a business owner out of Seattle. Uh, this was probably seven years ago or so, maybe a little more, uh, who he had done some research on, you know, at what point in people's incomes do they stop, you know, do, do you start getting diminishing gains in terms of how happy they are with their workplace? Yeah, and, I, I, yeah, I and that, yeah, yeah, at the time they had, he had figured out that once you're making $75,000 a year, you're, if you're happy with your job, you're going to be happy and giving you, I mean, everyone likes a raise after that point, but it doesn't mean nearly as much as if you're making 50,000 a year and you get a 10% raise, right? It goes a lot farther. That, that line is, is the struggle line where you wake up and you're just right. like, fuck, am I going to be able to afford this or my-, my Exactly, the, exactly. The upcoming mortgage bill is adding stress and stress hormones and cortisol well, to my daily life well, so you know, I, because I'm stressing about the cost of living that that $75,000 meant that you didn't have to stress about those expenses. And at $75,000, you were happy. Now, if you made $95,000, you weren't that much happier, right? Right. But you, but I think it's right. like so, two lines. There's the struggle line and then there's a comfort line. And I think the seventy-five thousand would be the comfort line. I think it would be. Well, I think it would be the struggle line, and I think the struggle line and the comfort line are there are effectively very close. Like, what's you know, what's really the difference there? Because that, that that's also going to depend on the person. But my, my, my point remains. My my point remains. If half the country is making less than that, whether it's a comfort line or a struggle line, if half the country is making less than that, well, then clearly wages are too low. So. I just, uh, I want to make. No, you can't draw the conclusion. All right, I'm, I'm going to mute both of you guys just to make my point here. Um, where that struggle line and where that comfort line, what, what's the difference? I don't think, what I'm saying is there's not, James, just on your point, I don't think there's that much difference. Because at the struggle line, you're, when you surpass that struggle line, that means you're, you're not driving a car that breaks down every two months, right? So you're driving a newer car. Now, that might be a, a a three or four year old Nissan Altima versus that comfort line might be driving a, you know, a, a, a brand new car, right? I don't think there's that much difference between driving a four year old Nissan and a 2022 Toyota, right? If you're, whether you have a 42 inch TV or a 55 inch TV, I think that's really the difference between struggle and comfort. And I don't think there's that much difference there, but to Kevin's point is getting people up to that $75,000 mark 
shouldn't be that difficult. I'm not saying it's not difficult. I, I, I'm, I'm saying that if half the people are below that line, then it's indicative of a problem. That's that. That's all I meant to say. Well, well, it's not even that. It's like that sixty-nine thousand dollar income. That's for like a family of four. So that means that the average person is probably making more like thirty-five thousand. Right. So, how do we bring that? lower class up, where does that money come from? So I I think really where that money comes from in today's society are the middle class people, right? And the smaller business owners, whereas where we'd like you to be coming from are the very top one, two, and three percent that are making that much more money than God himself. Well, I, I don't think the middle class has enough money, like literally, to spread that income across. But I, no, think, I, think, I think they're they're being milked. They're being milked for it. And just to just to support the jobs, we you know we have to have. I think the industries that we have in the United States. I'm sorry. I don't. I think making you know seventeen dollars an hour to work at McDonald's is a bit excessive. Okay. Now, if we had other industries in the United States that we've now we've exported the majority of our jobs to other countries, right? Um, and it, you know, if anything, that in some of those countries the workers may not be paid that much less. It's just that we get tax breaks from those countries to have the jobs there, which is wild, right? And then the the U.S. for whatever reason isn't putting tariffs on the cost of goods imported back into the U.S. from the U.S. companies. I I don't know exactly how that breaks down, but I, I to me, $17 an hour to work at McDonald's is silly. But if that's Why? the only option, that's Why? Really Why is that silly? Well, because I think we have to, you know, I don't think that a 35-year-old person who's trying to support a family should be working at McDonald's. But what if you don't have any other options? I that what I'm saying is we need to create more options by having more industry and more jobs in the United States rather than allowing our, our big companies and corporations to export these jobs and you know look at where we stand with China right now who you know if I buy pretty much anything online it is coming from somewhere in China right now there's a very high probability of that so I'm looking this up right now. So for those of you who aren't watching okay, the video so. feed, who are listening to us, James' face just started glowing white. And Which means I'm doing research. Now he's Googling something for us. Uh, so while James look, looks that thing up, um, all right, so you, you don't, you know, with the comment about someone making, you know, $17 an hour for McDonald's or whatever, right? Uh, and it's not worth it. Uh, so you work at, in Manhattan, right? Uh you, you run a business. Well, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you make tons of money because you're clearly a very successful looking guy, right? Uh, let's just say that you make a thousand. I'm glad I went that way. You're clearly making like a thousand dollars an hour, right? Um, we'll, we'll, we'll assume for the for the sake of you know this example that you're making a thousand dollars an hour. Internally, you can go ahead and take whatever your actual pay is and substitute that then, right? Uh, well, so, I like you chosen me as an adversary for your example, but go ahead. 
Well, I think James agrees with me. I mean, maybe not to the extent that I'm going. I am the, the hippie liberal douche, but... <laughs> I don't know where you're going with this, but... All right, well, so... I, I so, wanted, I, when you're done, I've got some stats. All right, so, 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 so you're making a thought... I want to I want to hear Kevin out here. I want to hear your stats. I want to say hi to Marmar on TikTok, and I'm going to get to her. I'm going to get to her question in just a second. Uh, All right, Kevin. So where are you going with this? So, 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 so you make somebody like me who works in Manhattan, who you believe, from your perspective, makes money hand over fist. Okay. Right. Uh, some person comes up to you randomly and says, "Hey, uh, I desperately need someone to work at McDonald's for the day. Uh, could you do this for me?" Uh, would you say yes if it was for that same $1,000 an hour? No, probably not. It, why? I, I, I'm curious, like, we'll, we'll assume that your, your work is covered. Like, you don't have to worry about that, yeah, no, right? Okay, yeah. Uh, I don't think it's a very good job. I don't want to make oh, oh, okay. but, but it, 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 french fries all day. Now, now you know, if I worked in, in some other industry, which didn't involve making french fries and selling burgers for $1, Okay, Walmart worker then. Like Walmart cashier. Like someone says, hey, I'll pay you $1,000 an hour to be a Walmart cashier for the day. I could do that, yeah. Okay. Um, then they say, okay, I'll do this to you for $15 an hour. But the issue, the issue is that Walmart worker couldn't turn around and then do my job. So, so, wait. so the, the issue is that the Walmart worker effectively should be paid less because it's a less complex job. I, I, I get where you're coming from. My, my, my point is there is higher replaceability when it comes to that employee. So now you have right. to do it for $15 what you're, what you're an hour. What you're restating is Marx's theory on wages. Well, so the point that I, I was trying to get to, and again, I, I'm sure you know, you'll both disagree with me to a certain extent on this, is you place value not just on... Uh, your skill set, but also on your time. Would I be correct in assuming that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I'm the same way. So shouldn't that be the same way for the McDonald's worker? And okay, you can say that their skill level is a zero, which I disagree with because there, there is, you, you have to at the very least not be able to work with, you know, be with coworkers, not, you know, uh, you multitask, yeah, yeah, multitask deal with really crappy customers. You, you, uh, gotta, you gotta, you got you gotta listen to me. You, you can do it at 16 years old. Okay. Uh, right. Look, I want to because I want to, I want to steer away from this for a second because when you were talking about like the the outsourcing of jobs and how if we were to bring back industrial and manufacturing jobs to this country, that would fix a lot of our problems. Here's well, the reason it, why that's not going to happen. Well, I I could, I could tell you many reasons why that's not going to happen. Well, but here's also, here's a very here's an easy one, because, like, the average factory worker in China makes about fifty six thousand Chinese yuan. If you translate that to U.S. dollars, that's about eight thousand dollars a year. But what is, what is that in with regards to China's economy? I think that's the other thing that's important. Like, that, I don't care about that. But it, no, okay. it doesn't matter. It okay. doesn't matter for okay. okay. Yeah. I, I know where you're going with this. If I'm a U.S. company and a skilled manufacturing job in the United States is going to cost me fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 per year per worker. And I can get that same worker in China for $8,000 a year. Even after tariffs, even after shipping, 
even after all the international mumbo-jumbo that's going to be introduced to this, I am coming out way ahead on my well, cost of manufacturing. Well, James, what you were saying is that's why an iPhone costs $1,100 and not twenty grand. okay? But, right, because we're, we're, you know, we make iPhones affordable in the United States because we make the phones in China. Now, the sad reality is that Americans couldn't afford the iPhone if it was made in the United States. And Chinese currently can't afford an iPhone and the iPhone is made in China. So, so that's, that's why, so I don't think increasing the wages here is just a simple solution. I think that's why we've gotten ourselves into a really mess of a situation internationally. Well, you know and what the solution why, is? That, that's, I don't, well, I don't think the solution is very simple, but I'm curious what, what you want to propose right now. I, 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 don't really, I don't really care about the outsourcing of jobs. I really don't because that's a problem that you can't fix. Because if you have labor that is three to 10 times cheaper somewhere else, you're going to go with it. So the jobs that we have in, in the United States exist, and you're not really gonna change the labor market too much. What we have a problem with is this kind of coagulation of money, where you have, mm -hmm. you have people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and a number of others that have more money than they can possibly spend. For example, Elon Musk spent $44 billion on a company. And if he loses every penny of that, which he might. <laughs> it's not very possible. Um, it will not have any effect whatsoever on the lifestyle he wants to live. The only effect it will have on him is just increased public ridicule. But in terms of him being able to do anything he wants, losing $44 billion will have zero effect on him. And the issue I have with people having that much money is that's capital that's not being allocated. That's, so, that's money that could be going to help other people and isn't. Because the next $50,000 that go to Elon Musk he would blink and he wouldn't even know it. And if, if I, I like the idea that now this is a bit extreme and I'm not advocating for it 100% as public policy, but I like the idea of once your net worth is $1 billion or more, you get a trophy that says you won capitalism and your tax rate is 100% until your net worth drops below $1 billion. And but anytime I, you complain about having to get taxed, you can just look at that trophy and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. I won. Well, I think I think there there should be some something along those lines. OK, I think 100 percent tax rate. I, is, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating. My I know you're exaggerating, a little bit. but that but that's why it's difficult for you, especially as a liberal person and same for you, Kevin, to get people on board with these ideas is that they're very off-putting, you know, with your... Well, no, I, I'm exaggerating my point for... A I know, I know. We all exaggerate and use hyperbole when we have good, solid points. And that's that's the issue with the discourse, is that people get so turned off. No, but, I, I don't even think it's that. So when you're looking at economic policy, the, the biggest issue is that there are plenty of people 
that are making you know below the median wage right so they're they're making below 69,000 and you know with regards to that median wage nice um they're, they're making below that but they think that one day they're going to be in that top one percent or top one percent of one percent and they don't want to potentially screw themselves out of that yeah, and well, the, the fact is you know the, the odds of them reaching that level of wealth are so ridiculously low that they might you can, as well be buying lottery tickets. Well, I think I think exactly. that right now you're speaking for 50 percent of every Southern uh, Republican state. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who, who you know, a lot of these guys live below the the lines we're talking about. Guys, yeah, I you've got to... people that are making forty thousand dollars a year voting against higher taxes on the people that are making a million dollars plus. So I want to I want to take a little pause. I want to address some comments that we got on online, and I got to ask you guys. Um, I've drinking at this point in time about uh, about half a liter of, of this. <laughs> I look I looked at it a little while ago and I I, I realized I was about. I, to I've been watching your pores. <laughs> I realized I was about the halfway mark in the bottle and I was like, oh, that's not that bad. It's just a little bottle. I looked at the label. It said a liter. And now I haven't seen you guys take a single sip of anything. I'm halfway through my beer. You're halfway through one beer with a with a six percent alcohol, right? And Kevin, we can't see your video for whatever reason. Um, I can get on camera here. I, you know, I just assume well, my, my bottle is pretty much empty. I'll, I'll tell you that much. Uh, it looks like I've got maybe uh, maybe one small pour left. So I'll, I'll give you that much. I don't. I didn't see what you started with, but uh, I, I hope you finish that bottle. I want to talk on TikTok right now. Two questions. Um, first question I'll, I'll answer because it's directed towards me. The other one is, is about McDonald's. Uh, but Marmar says, why did you stop making TikTok videos? And uh, Kevin, you may not know this. James, I know you're not on TikTok. I was doing regular daily kind of motivational or funny type TikTok videos. And I, uh, what would happen is I'd get a lot of comments on them. And I couldn't keep up with replying to all these comments. And I just felt bad. So I just really stopped making them because it became too much. And it, it for me, it was just, if you look at the last half dozen to a dozen videos I made, I didn't really answer any, any of the comments. And I just felt bad making more videos without going back to answer the comments. Uh, not, not obviously off topic from, uh, you know, uh, affording America, but uh, how did you feel about China sucking up, you know, all your data and uh, basically creating their own personal a personalized profile of you. Um, I, I have, I have, that is so, people freak out about that so much. I don't give a fuck. I, it's, Fair enough. The thing, is, the thing is people think that they're people when it comes to data. You're just a fucking number. Uh, that's it. At the end of the day, you're just a number. And, you know, if, if China's going to scan my face and put me in jail because I badmouth them, on TikTok 459 back in 20 March of 2020, you know, I, I, I don't see that as something that's super viable. I mean, maybe it is actually. If you go to China, it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of which, they just released Brittany Griner today, and the United States traded her for the Lord of War, which, if that's not a title alone, there was a movie which called Lord of War. Called Lord of War which stars Nicolas Cage, and actually it was one of his better movies. So. It was a good movie. And yeah, All these movies are it, great movies. Really I don't know what you're talking about. 
Not just, a fair trade. Uh, so, uh, so what, what Marmar says, you don't have to answer everybody. You post them for us to watch and hear the motivation. Thank you. Um, but I <laughs> still feel bad. Um, and then Zupi said, I said, you know, high schoolers, 16, 17-year-old kids are supposed to work at McDonald's. And she said, who are supposed to work these jobs uh, during the daytime if those jobs are only for school kids? And the answer to that is everybody who graduated high school at 18 years old and did nothing else. So I guess my issue with your whole point about McDonald's low wages and everything is whether you finished high school or didn't, whether you went to college or didn't, if you're working a full-time job, you should be able to afford a basic standard of living. Uh, let, let, me ask and, you, let me ask you this. When we define minimum wage, that language in itself has to imply that it is the base. Now, mm -hmm. we have to find a job to correspond to the base level of wages. What job is that going to be? Is it well, going to be content moderator for Facebook and Twitter where you watch people, people getting their heads chopped off? Or is it going to be deep, you know, dunking some, some chunks of French fries under, under some oil? So I, I, I imagine it's somewhere in there. Well, uh, so if anything, that the Facebook moderator gets more money. Right, but what I'm what I'm saying is, first of all, when it comes like Marx's theory of wages, is that you are not paid for the value you produce; you are paid based on how difficult it is to replace your labor. That's and I, I would okay. So, can you repeat that one more time because I don't want it to be glossed over. The statement that you just made, and it's it's go ahead, just define it and say it one more time. So, Marx's theory of wages. Workers are not paid based on the value that they produce for the company. They are paid based on the difficulty of the company to replace that labor. So that's that's where I feel about McDonald's workers. I feel like it's you have a lot of people that will take that job. And it's not a complex task at hand. So in fact, I, that's I, McDonald's I, I think that. I think that that's one of the things that Marx got very right about wages. But my point is, from an ethical perspective, we should not have a system where somebody can work full-time hours and not be able to afford a basic standard of living, well, and by which I define as being able to afford rent and being able to afford food, clothing, and insurance. Like, I'm not talking about any luxuries whatsoever. I'm talking about the bare necessities to survive without suffering. And, like, our current minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. In South Carolina? Federal. Yeah, it's federal. Okay. So states can have a higher minimum wage within the state. So, like, New York might have a higher one. I don't know. But... I think it's like the federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five, and what's that? What's that math out to be for a year full time? Uh, you you double, you double and you, and you multiply by a thousand. It's about fourteen five. So yeah, but, so that's fifteen grand for a year. Let's call it working on federal minimum wage. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody, I don't think anybody that, pretends that you can survive on the minimum wage. I, don't, I just don't think it's possible. It's literally below the poverty line. Guys, like, we're going we're gonna to drop off the feed in about uh, 60 seconds. 
So just want to give you a heads up. We can continue yeah. the conversation. For those of you watching us. I got about five to ten minutes before I have to go. All right. Those of you watching us on TikTok and Instagram, we're going to drop the feed in uh, 60 seconds. Make sure you subscribe to Sip Talk, the podcast, on any audio podcast platform and on YouTube. We'll see you guys next time. Uh, so I want you to finish your point there. All right. So when I look at um, historical minimum wages – and you adjust it for inflation. So the highest minimum wage I see was in 1970. Inflation adjusted was about 12 bucks an hour. Now, remember that back in 1970, rents were proportionally lower, as we already talked about in the first couple minutes. Yeah, so so it was easier to live on $12 an hour. Not for rent, yeah. It was easier to live on $12 an hour in 1970 than it is in 2022. But my point is, I just think ethically, if you cannot survive working a full-time job then on minimum wage, then the minimum wage is too low. And if you as a business cannot survive by paying your workers, like I'm going to call it the real minimum wage, mm-hmm. if you as a business cannot survive by paying without unless you're paying your uh, workers below minimum, below real minimum wage, then you have a flawed business model. It means that your your business does not provide that much value. That that, that that's ultimately what it means because you're only able to survive by paying your workers a substandard wage. Yeah, you know, I didn't pay great wages in my company, but I really tried to, I really, you know, I gave people uh, pay increases without them asking based off my value to them. And to to be clear, you didn't pay at minimum wage or like minimum wage plus $1, right? No, there were salary salary positions that, uh, you know, that, that I did my best to pay as high a salary as, as possible. But it was Um, probably like, like 17 to $20 an hour plus, right? I w- it was about sixty grand. Uh, okay, so that's thirty an hour. Um, right, so it's not even close to minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, when we're talking about raising minimum wage, we're not talking about businesses like yours, which are paying employees currently thirty dollars well, an hour. We're talking I, about. I I felt you know from my perspective that it was a rather low wage, given the office was in Midtown Manhattan, and the goal was to have these people on board in building a company where they could build themselves higher wages in the future. And we were very much having that trajectory. Like I said, I gave, I gave raises, pay increases, and bonuses. Uh, but then when we got really cut off at the knees during the pandemic, where we were forced to shut down, but then the landlord wanted every penny and every company that we paid subscription services, et cetera, et cetera, wanted every penny that you know they were owed, that put a, you know, a, it slowed right. us down quite a bit. I don't think anyone's criticizing you for having to downsize no, no, the just, pandemic. I'm, the I'm the just, point is, like, if the what people we're that get paid to listen to this podcast, I want them to understand that yeah, perspective. But I guess for you to be paying somebody $60,000 a year and feeling that that was a low wage, the criticisms that I'm lobbing out here are not directed at somebody like you. Because even at like the least char- at the most charitable reading of your wages, you were paying double minimum wage. Yeah, because like you know the fight for fifteen and everything like that. So you're paying double what people are asking for. My criticism is with these giant companies that are making a ton of money, 
And yeah. the only reason they're making such grandiose sums of money is because their workers in their job orientation are getting like pamphlets on how to apply for food stamps. Well, yeah, that's, but that's, that's, that's why you should avoid any labor unions because they'll, they'll, they'll cut into your wages. But that's why I can hold on to my liberal roots in, in knowing that that's how I ran my business. Um, and that there was times, the majority of the time, uh, not the majority of the time, but there were, there were times where I was paying people's salaries and putting my personal home rent and the office rent on credit cards. So, you know, like to, just to give some perspective into, I know, Kevin, you pointed your finger at me and said, yeah, I make all this money in Manhattan. Well, again, as we were talking, I was being absurd to make my point. I <laughs> like, know. And, 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 you know, I again, know. my point is everyone's time has value. What, you know, you, you may, you know, uh, let, let's say that your skill is, you know, 90% of the value that you provide to your business, right? Kevin, I, I got your point, and I yeah. understand you you assigning a high value in my time was to incentivize me to work at Walmart behind a cash register. I understand that. I I, I listened to your yeah. your example. Um, I said I've been drinking this Bob Creek, so. <laughs> um, okay, so I think I think kind of to summarize, you know, we have a couple different perspectives. I think I think the the real hardcore left wing ultra liberal is we just increase wages, okay? And I don't think we're all thinking that that's the only solution. But I think the the hardcore left-wing ultra-liberal is increase wages and kind of this all this strife, all this discussion just kind of evaporates. But what I'm saying, and I'll, I'll give you guys each a chance before we wrap to kind of add, add your spin or your perspective on this, my thinking is, is that we've really fucked up in terms of outsourcing our labor, outsourcing all of our goods, creating subscription-based and rental-based economy that it, we're, nobody's building any equity if you're just paying subscription and, and rental. And, uh, you know, we're, we're letting these big corporations dictate what's happening to the middle and the lower class just because the middle and the lower cl class don't have a player in the game, right? Well, the big they're corporations can afford political influence. But we they're can't. just, yeah, they don't have any players in the game. They are just the terrain the game is played upon, right? Yeah. So, so we have, there's a lot that needs to be fixed, but I don't think fixing one thing really well is going to solve it. And I don't think we can fix anything really well at this point in time with a two-party system in a divided country and a country that's so large that we have New York, New Jersey, California, Florida, Texas, and South Dakota all in the same country that we're all going to come to an agreement anyways. So James, actually, Kevin, I, I want to hear your, your closing perspective. James, I'll give you the final words and then we'll sign off. Sounds sure. Great. I mean, I, I would say that it would be foolish for anyone to think that you can fix any given problem by just raising the wages. And I say that as, again, the resident hippie liberal douche. Uh, it, the, the issue, I think, more is within the political arena, people, 
you know, on either side will focus on one issue. And this isn't specific to cost of living. This is specific to just anything going on in America, right? Take a look at the latest uh, school shooting or whatever, and it's all, okay, well, the left wants to ban your guns and the right wants more guns everywhere or more police everywhere, right? When instead there's 20 or 30 different issues that you could talk about that contribute to gun violence. You could talk about this with, when it comes to abortions, you could talk about this to any number of issues, but within the political arena, it's always, let's focus on this one thing. Uh, whereas realistically, what needs to be done is a more holistic approach needs to be taken and look at everything that's wrong within the system and apply solutions to all of them at once. Because if you just apply one single patch, it's going to, you know, end badly at best. All right, James, I think uh, I think you're up and, and you're welcome for getting the last word in. So go for it. When it comes to general affordability in this country, the, the biggest issue is kind of the late stage capitalism aspect of our culture where so much so much of the wealth is concentrated in so few people and money buys power. And until you find a way of taxing that out and redistributing it to people that would be able to actually tangibly benefit from that money, you're going to continue to have these inequality problems. And when you have large corporations that are able to buy up a significant portion of the supply of housing and then rent it back to people at a price that would be more than the mortgage that they, they would have been able to qualify for. And when you have a business that's sustained only because you're paying submarket wages. Like we're, we're an unsustainable path and like the solution is either to fix it now by gently increasing taxes and the, the higher up you are in income, the less gentle that increase is, or at some point this differential between rent and wage growth is going to get to a point where too many people can't afford it, can't afford to live in this country at all. And you either have a mass exodus or you have another civil war. Yep. I think, uh, I think that was very well said. And I feel like, uh, I feel like that's the direction we're, we're heading. You know, we talked about the 40 year trend of, cost of living and uh cost of living is outpacing wage growth at some point that that gap is going to be too large and enough people will be suffering that it will reach a critical mass and something will explode and so like a nuclear reactor you either pour some water on it and cool it off and keep it nominal or if you ignore it long enough you have a meltdown and you have a huge disaster um all right, guys. Uh, Kevin, you're either texting James, you're researching There was a quote from uh, Cutter uh, earlier. You know, someone had asked them about, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, people running the World Cup about, you know, all the uh, deaths in the creation of, you know, the stadiums and stuff. And his quote was basically, people die every day, you know, sometimes in work. And, and that's very much where we're 
where we're heading. We're not there now, obviously. We're not in the state that Cutter is. But yeah, if uh, wait, if uh, we uh, continue on this path of cost of living increasing and wages not, then we'll eventually reach that point. Yeah, and you can see this throughout history that when economic conditions in a country decline past a certain point, the end result is violent revolution. I'm not advocating for that. I would like to avoid that. But, but we're seeing it. We're seeing it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, guys. On that note, I think this was an entirely unproductive conversation. I'm glad we had it. <laughs> we had it. Every podcast that way? I feel like everything we've talked about about how to fix the United States, the last four episodes, including the fifth episode uh, where we covered the midterm elections, were completely non-productive and it sucks because it, 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 it's not well, like it's, we don't it's, agree it's, it's not we're not it, it's not it, it's fatalistic or just like saying like we have all these ideas and uh none of them are gonna happen but a lot of them aren't great ideas and, and the reason they're not just great ideas is because because there's there's no possibility there's no feasibility of that happening given our current state which to me means one thing it means things have to get a lot worse for any change to happen. And that's unfortunate, but I just I just don't think that people are going to agree on shit until they have to. I, I have to agree. Well, um, will one side eventually uh, come to the table with uh, schmore schnapps? I don't, I don't know what you said. <laughs> that's a reference to South Park. <laughs> sounded like schnapps. Uh, I'm not going to have these schnapps tonight. I'm going to pour one more glass of gin, put the bottle in its hiding place and uh and edit this podcast so uh thank you guys for joining thank you guys for watching on tiktok i see uh a half dozen of you watching this live right now and uh make thanks sure for joining you, us guys thanks for joining us make sure you guys subscribe on all audio podcast platforms search sip talk and uh you can also follow us on youtube and if you watch youtube facebook twitter or twitch you can watch us live you can comment, ask your questions. We'll thank Jessica Medjeski. Medjeski. I, I think I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. James, some help on that. Medjeski. Medjeski. It's got to be Polish. Uh, we just saw her recent comment. She said disregard it, but calling her out anyways. We'll see you guys next time. Kevin, thanks for joining, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Adios. Cheers. Right, bye. Well, let's see. End of this episode. I want to thank you for joining. If you have not already, please subscribe on YouTube and all audio podcast platforms. And also, if you wouldn't mind, hit the like button. That way, uh, at least I know you're there, especially if you already subscribe. See you guys next time. I like PBR. I just got priced out of it.